Welcome again. So good to see you. So good to be here. So good to stand in front of this new podium. Shout out to Becky and Miguel who aren't with us tonight, but they're here in spirit with this new podium. I'm so glad that you're here, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Nehemiah. Oh, me, oh, Maya. We're going to Nehemiah for this first message here in our new space. Nehemiah is toward the end of what's known as the books of history. It's toward the front of your Bible after the Chronicles. And so turn or swipe to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be there here in just a moment. But first, I want to see if you've heard this statement. And so if you've heard it, would you finish it? Ready? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Man, you have heard it. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So let me tell you just how everything in this place, even at 455, didn't quite go according to plan. But it worked out anyway. First of all, look down at your feet and look at this lovely carpet. This lovely carpet is so much better than the carpet that was here. And we're so grateful for First United Methodist for replacing this carpet for us. We are less thankful for the carpet company that didn't order our first choice in the color. We are less thankful that it was installed about three weeks late. It didn't exactly go according to plan. Now, look at this chair that you're sitting on. These lovely navy chairs. These were not our first choice. Were they, Carla? If you want to see our first choice, I invite you to the middle room, our multi-purpose room, where you'll see the sample chair that was shipped to us from Florida, and they said, look at this color. Do you want to buy more of these? We did not buy more of those. And even though that was our first choice, we found these chairs nearby instead. Now, look at these lovely panels. Can we give a round of applause again to Mr. Robert Vaughn? He made these panels. They were a beautiful cedar wood, and he bought a nice natural stain, and he sent me a FaceTime message, and he said, this isn't the right color, is it? And he sent me pictures with Kara standing next to it for scale, and it was some kind of orange that wasn't exactly according to plan. Now, let me tell you the story one more time. Look down at this carpet. This is our second choice. And it could not have matched better with this second-hand gray that we weren't exactly planning on the panels. This gray color that I just happened to grab out of Lowe's when Amy Wood came and painted this. We found this cove base was the wrong color for what we originally planned. But this base is the exact right color that matches this old metal here and perfectly flows with this carpet that was our second choice, not according to plan. And it so pops against these navy chairs that we didn't know existed, except for in a storage unit in Grand Prairie, bequeathed to us at less than half of the price it would have cost to get more of those chairs shipped from Florida. And it just works, doesn't it? I love the way this gray matches that gray. I love the way that this carpet is basically the same exact pattern and color as the chair we would have gotten. Y'all would have all been camouflaged because it would have matched, but it worked out instead. 
And I know that these are little gifts, but I think it's evidence of how often things don't go exactly as planned, but things end up exactly how we need them. Now, this is when you raise your hand and you say, excuse me, but I don't always get the way I want things to be. I don't always get the way I think I need them and want them. And I say, yes, you're right. But there are moments when it comes to the plans, when it comes to our next steps, that God does laugh a lot of the time. I'm not just talking about the big mysterious things and the healing and all those. I'm talking about our plans. But what happens when we set out and God doesn't just laugh at them? What happens when we tell God our plans and God says, yeah, that sounds great. What happens when God doesn't laugh, but he says, no, I will do what you've asked. That's where Nehemiah finds himself. Nehemiah brings some big plans before God. And what we're going to see this evening is that it may be tough to live in light of a yes to an answered prayer, but you can trust God with it and you can trust God through it. You can trust God with your plans and so much more. I'm going to show you at least three ways tonight. And you can trust God even through it. So first, I want to turn now back to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Lord willing, it'll be on the screen right there, so you can follow along that way or on your phone or Bible. This is the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And so I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. I'm going to explain to you what is going on there in just a moment. But they give him this report. In verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, this is Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Verse 8. So God, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, God says, I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Rounding home now, verse 10. 
They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So again, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then almost as an aside, Nehemiah says, I was a cupbearer to the king. We'll pick the story back up in just a moment. But first, I want to show you that you can trust God with your sadness. Did you notice that Nehemiah got some bad news? Did you notice how Nehemiah responded? He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed, and he did this for a minute or for several days? Several days. We can trust God with our sadness. And if you think that that is sad, let me tell you how it was even sadder before Nehemiah chapter 1. You see, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to a king. But the king is not an Israelite king. The king is a Persian king. How does a Jewish man, Nehemiah, end up the cupbearer to a Persian king in Persian land? Well, you have to rewind the story of Israel even further. And we're going to talk about B.C. years, which count toward year zero, which we mark time by the birth of Jesus, or our best guess at it. So 586 B.C., 586 years before Jesus is born, the worst happens. You think it's sad in Nehemiah 1? 586 B.C., the saddest of sad, the September 11th of the Jewish people times a million happened. God's holy temple got destroyed, and God's people got carted off from the land that God promised to Babylon. So the worst happened. God kept saying, turn back to me, turn back to me, turn back to me, or you're going to get wiped out by the superpower Babylon. And they kept turning away from God and away from God, and so the worst happened. Babylon comes in, sacks the temple, and carries off those who survive. That's 586. 70 years later, they're allowed to come back. Why? Because the superpower Babylon got knocked out, and the new superpower, Persia, takes center stage. So Persia says, y'all can go back, good luck, because your temple is wrecked, your city's a wasteland, and there's a lot of people that have moved in and are squatting where your ancestors used to be. But in the book of Ezra, which is before Nehemiah, they persist. So they go back and they rebuild the temple. And so now, 70 years after the exile, the second temple is built and it's dedicated and it's a big and dramatic and sacred and beautiful restoration that you can read in the Chronicle books and Ezra. And things were looking up. Now fast forward even 70 more years and Nehemiah's brother comes back to this cupbearer in the Persian royal court. The cupbearer who's trusted 
to take some dangerous sips of wine to make sure it's not poisoned before he hands it to the king. Raise your hand if you wanted to be a cupbearer for an ancient king. Raise your hand every time that man was thirsty. You didn't get a chill down your spine because you knew you had to sip that water or that wine. And the way you know it's not poisoned, you ready for it, is you don't die. That's a terrible job. But it needs to be a job for someone who is trusted. And Nehemiah is a Jewish man a long way from his ancestral homeland in a foreign court to a foreign king. And his brother comes and says, things are rough back home. And so Nehemiah trusts God with his sadness. Maybe this is a place that he's never been to, but he grieves what could be for he and his people. Nehemiah's response is in verse 4, and I already referenced it. But he was mourning, he fasted, and he prayed for days and days. You see, there's a problem, and that problem is a lie. And that lie is from easy, cheesy Christianity that has some kind of toxic positivity that greets your tears with, cheer up, he's in a better place. Or it greets your cheers with, cheer up, God has a plan, you're fine. And it greets your tears with, stop being sad, everything is going to be all right. It could be worse. Easy cheesy Christianity tells you the lie that God would never call you to a situation that's sad. God would never call me to something that's sad. God would never bring a report after he promised he'd bring all these exiles back, even from the furthest place. We dedicated the temple, and 70 years later, the wall is still burned up. The city is still erect. It's uninhabitable. Sure, we got a place to worship, but I don't know where I even feel safe to sleep. God, where are you? God would never call us to grieve, right? wrong. True faith looks grief and pain and lament in the eye and brings it in a big fat bucket and lays it at God's feet and says, I need you do something. And so what we see in Nehemiah in verse four and the prayer he prays is how instead of stuffing it, and lashing out and shutting down, we have permission to bring our whole self to God by mourning, fasting, and praying. Stuffing it says, no, everything's all right. These tears don't matter. But Nehemiah feels it. You have permission to feel it. I don't know if your friends give you space to mourn. Because we don't know what to do with grieving and mourning people. But maybe the best gift we can offer our friends, our family, and ourselves who are mourning is space to actually mourn. And it's not that the things that we want to say aren't true. It's just that sometimes it's enough to sit and cry together. So instead of stuffing it, let it out. And then sometimes you can do what I do or we all did when we were sad and crying at two years old. You lash out. 
Lashing out is something that's reactionary. Lashing out is human. But lashing out is only the first step. You have to move beyond the first step. And you have to not let your anger, your upset spill out and affect others. So instead of lashing out, what Nehemiah does is he fasts. And fasting is the voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function to focus, to refocus on God. So lashing out says, I'm upset. How dare you ask me how I'm doing? Lashing out says, I'm upset. Get away from me. I don't want to hear it. And then you just create more sadness and more upset. That's natural. That's reactionary. But to get to the second step of denying that impulse to hurt another and to refocus. Fasting is a spiritual exercise. But when it comes to grief, what would happen if we move to the next step beyond lashing out? Is that we can focus on God, focus on others. It moves deeper than reactivity. We can trust God with our sadness instead of shutting down. How many of us would just rather numb out and Netflix and not think about it? Yes and amen. Hallelujah. In our church, we have a mantra where we say, what would happen if we turned our worrying into praying? This is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah engages with God and others through pain. Yes, it's easy to shut down, but sometimes lament must be communal. Sometimes you need to gather people around you and say, we can't fix this on our own, so come here and let's look to someone beyond ourselves because, God, you've got to do something. So the prayer that I just read in those um, seven or eight verses looks like Scripture. If you went back through, you can find echoes of Leviticus and echoes of Deuteronomy and echoes of Jeremiah. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 29, all steeped and woven in his prayer. His prayer is steeped in scripture. How fitting is it to grab the words that we prayed in Psalm 46 earlier, to grab the words of Psalm 23 earlier, so that when you don't have words, borrow God's. There's a psalm for that. There's a psalm for your pain. There's a psalm for your anger. There's a scripture for your joy. This prayer is steeped in scripture. His prayer also tells the truth. He says, I confess that I blew it, that my father's family blew it. We have made a mistake. He brings his whole self. His prayer also asks God for help. He trusts that God can do something even about this. So why am I spending so much time on this? In this way, Nehemiah can mourn in a way that puts him in contact with reality. What's the reality? Earmuffs, little kids. The reality is, this sucks, but I'm bringing it to you, God. It roots him in a reality instead of easy, cheesy Christianity that says, no time to stuff it, no time for mourning, fasting, or praying. I'd rather stuff it, lash it, and I'd rather just simply avoid it. That's a lie. Because isn't our sadness where God wants to be and wants to work? Yes or no? I think God wants to be with us. He wants us to be aware of that. 
The second place we can trust him with is our fear. And we see that in the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, this is four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Someone name your kid Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes Adam. That would be nice. As we get our screens back, I'll keep reading. This is in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 2. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Have you ever been so sad that you walk in and your coworker, your boss is like, "Mm, what's wrong with you? And you say, nothing, nothing. He's like, "Mm, no, something. And what's fascinating is that this Persian king sees Nehemiah, who he clearly trusts, clearly doesn't just kick out and say, take a personal day and come back. He said, this is some kind of deep sadness. And what a gift it is that this guy is willing to engage with him. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, uh, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestor buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And this is when you almost imagine him going, oh, I spilled it. I shouldn't have done that. But he trusts God with his fear. Because four months after Nehemiah gets bad news, he's still sad. He's still grieving, but he has an opportunity. It would be so much easier if when he brings that wine to the king and he's looking so sad, he could have stuffed it. He could have lashed out. He could have just completely ignored it. But instead, he had an opportunity to get the king's ear and he tells him, look, my homeland is wrecked. So imagine the most volatile and high-ranking CEO type you can. You know you need to ask him for the biggest favor, and you look a hot mess. And you still move forward with your plan to ask him, can you help me? Can you help my homeland? There's another lie as we get our slides back in easy, cheesy Christianity, and it's that God would never call me to something, ready note takers, scary. The first lie is that God would never call us to something sad. The second lie is that God would never call us to something scary. But I think that that's where God can teach us to rely on him. Our faith is flooded with stories of people facing a next terrifying step. And they don't know how it's going to happen, but they walk anyway. I think about this scene from this old movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's the one with Sean Connery. Do you remember it? I don't remember much of it, but I remember this scene. There's a scene toward the end, and he's running through this temple, and he's got this diary that's giving him, like, clues so that he can avoid the booby traps. And if you say, I don't remember that, guess what? It's in all of them, whatever. It's the third one with Sean Connery. He's doing that again. And I literally think he's also running from Nazis again. So he's running through this temple, and he's searching for the Holy Grail. And he's even more motivated to find it because it's going to heal Sean Connery if he can get the Holy Grail and come back, its power can heal him. So he's working through this diary, and there's this clue that says you must take a leap of faith. 
And so he's on the edge of this cliff, and he's looking. He says, leap of faith, leap of faith. And he looks down, and he sees nothing but nothing. And so because I think Steven Spielberg did it, it's real dramatic. And the music, you can look it up on YouTube. And then it's showing Sean Connery dying, and he goes, have faith, you can do it. And it's like, how do you know that he's on the cliff? When, but, but anyway, it's like a montage, and it's cutting back and forth, and he's breathing real heavily. And so he takes his foot out like this, and he goes, leap of faith. And he steps down, and only then does the camera pan out, and you see what you couldn't see before. And it's a bridge. But the problem with this bridge is that it looks exactly like that rock face and then that rock face and that rock face and that rock face. And if you're standing right there, you can't see it until you take a step, a leap of faith. It's back there, and pretty soon it'll be up there. But it's on that screen there. You knew there was going to be some kinks that we're figuring out. I believe that when we trust God with our fear, you have this sense that he's calling you to love, to act, to trust, to stop, to move, to do that thing that seems impossible. And you're right. But what happens when you take a step is God seems to give you in that moment what you didn't have before. But you only get it when you take a step. I can't forgive that person. You're right. But if you open yourself and try, God fills in the gaps and helps you. And then you say, well, I can't go and interact or love or I can't do that. I can't go to that. And then you take a step and you find yourself equipped with grace that you need for that task. You don't get it when you're staying here. You don't get what you need when you're staying here, but you find that with each step, God meets you with grace upon grace upon grace, and the reason you're not growing and the reason you don't have that patience that you've been praying for and begging for is maybe because he's saying, just just take a step and I'll show you. I'll show you, but you're going to have to walk with me. When God calls us to something scary, we have a choice to turn around or we have a choice to trust him. He'll give us what we need when we decide to take a step and walk. The third thing is that we can trust God with our plans. We can trust God with our plans. In verses 4 to 9, he's going to ask him something huge. Let's pick it back up in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? And then watch this. Nehemiah tells us in his little memoir, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Blink and you miss it. The king asks, what do you want? And the first thing he does is what? Pray. How many of us need to work God into our to-do list? How many of us need to listen to God while we're listening to another in conversation? How many of us need to talk to God before we open our mouth and talk to that other person and tell them where I'm from and tell them how upset I am and tell them something I wish I didn't tell them? Instead, Nehemiah prays before he engages. So he prays, and then he asks 
If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So then the king with the queen sitting right beside him said, well, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He basically said, I'm going to be gone for like years. Verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He says, also, can I get a royal blessing so these fools don't mess with me along the way? And then verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for which the city wall and for the residents that I'll occupy. He basically says, can you also give me an order so I can get all the materials I need to build a wall for a city you hate and a house for me to live in? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king said, yeah. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So as we wind down, let me just remind you of what just happened. Ready? He's praying as he's planning. He prays, then he asks for this. Ready? I want to work remote, and I probably won't be back in the office for like a dozen years. And by the way, I'm going to be working on a different project that has nothing to do with what you're up to. And don't worry. I need you to fund all of it. Don't pay to move me. Pay to build my own house. And while you're at it, make sure that on this lengthy journey, no one bothers me. Give me your royal blessing. How many of your bosses are saying, that sounds awesome, do it. Yeah, cool. No, that's crazy. And especially because he told them to stop building back in the book of Ezra. The guy said, stop building. And Nehemiah trusts God with his plans. And the king says, yeah, you know what? Keep building. So the easy cheesy Christianity tells you God would never call you to something so staggering. That's the third S. The lie is that he wouldn't call you to something sad. The lie is that he wouldn't call you to something scary. And the third lie is that he wouldn't call you to something so staggering, so huge. But isn't that where God in his grace says, I want to show you just how good I am. I want to show you that we can partner together. And when the boss said no, and now he says yes, the clue is in verse 8. The thing that changed was this. The gracious hand of my God was on me. So the king granted my requests. So what happens when God actually answers our staggering, huge, big prayers? I want you to imagine with me that we're not talking about the healing and the helping Yes, God answers those, but I'm talking about the kinds of prayers we love to pray in church. These kind, ready? God, send me to blank. 
God, help me to blank. God, use me to blank. They're up there in the back if you really want to know. What happens if God actually says, okay, I'll use you to serve the poor. Sure, I'd love to send you to the homeless. Yes, I would love to send you to a new state, a new place, a new responsibility. Yes, I would love to help you be more patient, kind, loving, and merciful to that person that is just draining you. God, help me in my marriage to blank. Okay, I will, but you're going to have to take a step. What happens if he actually says yes to our plans? When we became the neighborhood church seven years ago next month, we prayed a dangerous prayer. Do some of you remember what it was? We said, God, give us all the people that what? Nobody wants. What happened when God said, okay. We wanted them. We loved them. He sent us and is sending us to neighbors that look different, that live different. What happens when God says, yes, will we be a church that actually partners with him? God, help us become more united and together and grow our relationships. What happens if God says, yes, let's do it together. Take a step. Send a text. Show up. What happens? I'll tell you, he gives us grace in the next step. And then you ask again, and he gives you grace for the next one. Will it be tough? Probably. Read the rest of the book of Nehemiah. It's a nightmare. But God is with them each and every step, rising to each new challenge. So finally, I'll ask you, what big, scary, significant prayers are we going to pray in this season? In this new space, with a lot of people two blocks away, with apartments there and apartments there that are very different from one another, filled with people that need to know the loving heart of God, expressed in kindness toward Jesus, inviting them into life with him, expressed in life with this community. What big, scary, significant prayers can we dare to pray? Let's start now. God, we ask that you would use this church to make much of who you are and what you're doing in this city. As we gather here in this new place, would you help us to be a church that reaches out just as you have, that we might share the reconciling love of Christ and that we might set off together to follow Jesus for your kingdom in this neighborhood each and every step. Amen and amen. Whatever plan, path, or wilderness the Spirit has brought you to, may you walk in boldness as a beloved child of God. May you walk in peace under the shelter of the Most High. 
May you walk in faith, knowing Christ walks with you each step now and forever. Go in peace.